Welcome to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. And as we usually do, we have a theme for the next four podcasts. And today and the next several weeks, we will be talking about a group that's close to my heart. It is the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth, which is located in Washington, D.C. And to that end, we have two people we will be speaking with um, who are very, very um, much involved in the campaign, Preston Ship and Catherine Jones. So before I introduce our first guest, who will be Preston Ship, I just wanted to read something that I thought really um, encapsulates who this campaign is, what, what they're all about. I, I like this. This is on their website. The Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth envisions the United States becoming a society that respects all children's human rights and nurtures their capacity to become leaders, responding to any harm they cause in ways that are rooted in their dignity and unique potential for change. Together, we seek a response to the harm caused by children that is conscientious of childhood traumas, restorative and empowering to all parties and equitable, especially with regard to race and ethnicity. It was founded in 2009. So welcome Preston, I wanted to read your uh, bio so people know a little bit about you before we begin our conversation. Preston Ship joined the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth in May of 2019, and he serves as Senior Policy Counsel. In this role, he provides strategic guidance, support, and leadership to states that are working to eliminate life without parole and other extreme sentences for children. He works directly with state level advocates and legislators. For several years, he was an appellate prosecutor in the Tennessee Attorney General's office. While serving as a volunteer and teaching college classes in Tennessee prisons, he became good friends with many people who were incarcerated, one of whom he had actually prosecuted. These relationships caused Preston to wake up to the many injustices that are present in the American system of mass incarceration. Unable to reconcile this conflict, Preston left his career as a prosecutor in 2008. And since then, he has taught in universities and churches, lectured at conferences, and written about the urgent needs for criminal justice reform, a shift in how we regard imprisoned people, and a new vision of justice that seeks healing, transformation, and reconciliation. He lives in Nashville with his wife, Sharice, and their three children, Lila Joy, Ruby Faith, and Levy. I hope I pronounced the kids' names correctly. Oh, Levi is the little boy, but yes. Le Levi. Okay, very good. And welcome, Preston, to the podcast. Thank you so much. All right. It's good to have you with us. 
So there's lots to talk about. Um, why don't we begin by maybe going a lot deeper than I did and talking about the mission of the campaign for the fair sentencing of youth? Yes, thank you. Well, the, the campaign, as you mentioned in your opening remarks, has been around since 2009, and it is laser focused on eliminating life without the possibility of parole and other extreme adult sentences from being applied to children, anybody under the age of 18, uh, that the United States is the only country in the world that will sentence a child to die in prison. Uh, and so the campaign uh, was founded to address that issue. Fortunately, we have had great success that uh, now 31 states have either passed laws abolishing life without parole for kids or have no one serving that sentence. Um, and so with over half the states no longer um, participating in this in this draconian uh, practice that's just a, a terrible human rights violation, we've had great success, but there's a lot of work to be done. So uh, it's a real pleasure to get to do that work, but you know, it, it's always there. Okay, so you've been on staff for about two and a half years, and I find the story of the change in your career fascinating. How did that happen and uh, that you upended your job as a prosecutor and decided to find another line of work? Well, thank you for that question. Um, it, it has been an interesting journey. Um, you know, when, when I was a junior in college, I interned with the local prosecutor's office here in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, I was absolutely spellbound by, by what I experienced that summer. I was always kind of interested in law enforcement. Um, and then when I saw what the prosecutors were doing, how they really were sort of orchestrating um, the events, you know, interrogating witnesses and conducting plea negotiations and, and, uh, and all those sorts of things. It was just so exciting. And um, I believed very much, you know, that justice was a matter of making sure that the bad people who had done the harm got punished. Um, and, and so prosecutors were wearing the white hats. Prosecutors were vindicating victims and uh, working to promote public safety. So um, after that summer, uh, I became laser focused on going to law school for the sole uh, purpose of becoming a prosecutor. So while I was in law school, I, I just did not care much about contracts or business associations, you know, and all those other things you take in law school. I was really, really focused on any class that would make me the best prosecutor I could be. And uh, it ended up, you know, going to work for the Tennessee Attorney General's office. Uh, and, and uh, you know, in my I guess I would have been about 27 years old at that time and just thought, well, this is it. You know, I'm here. I'm going to make a career out of this. I'll work my way up through the ranks. But I had no career aspirations other than to be a prosecutor because my conviction that I was doing the right thing um, was so strong. You know, there, there were no real chinks in the armor. I, was, I didn't lose any sleep at night over uh, having a hand in imposing extremely long sentences, sometimes against kids as young as 15 and 16 years old. I think when you when the only information you have about someone is maybe the worst moment of their lives, that's a really dangerous position to be in and can cause you to think, you know, that they are irredeemable, that they're a monster. And uh, and, and while I don't think I ever would have said those things out loud, that's sort of how you 
how you do the job. Um, and that changed for me uh, in 2007 when the college that I attended started a prison program where they started offering college classes out at uh, the Tennessee Prison for Women. And the gentleman who directed the program was my major professor. And so he knew I was a prosecutor and he invited me to come out to the prison and teach a pre-law class during the spring semester of 2007. And that was really my first experience being uh, in close proximity to folks who were incarcerated that was not a courtroom. And, and obviously, you know, what I found there completely knocked me off my feet uh, because, you know, there, when, you, when you gather in a circle and, and start to hear one another's stories, there's an awful lot of details that the jury is never privy to, and neither is the prosecutor. Um, all of the people in that class, you know, had, had so much in common in terms of prior trauma, being victims of abuse, violence having been just all around them, um, poverty, uh, substance abuse issues. It was, you know, like in each case, it was sort of a perfect storm. Um, and, and it's not that they didn't take responsibility, but those were, that was just the context in which, you know, their crimes were committed. Um, and when you start to hear those stories, you start thinking, well, if I were in their shoes, I'm not sure I would have done any better. Um, but I also saw the way that they had invested so heavily in their own rehabilitation that they were obviously taking college classes and, and you know, extensive programming. Um, they were proving that they were more than their worst moment. They just needed an opportunity to prove that to somebody. And I started rooting for them, you know, and I would have gladly given them a letter of recommendation. I would have been glad to have them live uh, in my neighborhood. And, you know, you can't think that way too long and still be a prosecutor, you know, because you start thinking, well, shoot, if I'd had a chance to get to know any one of these other hundreds of defendants whose cases I prosecuted, uh, maybe I would have been rooting for them too. Why did I ever feel comfortable making these arguments about people who I'd never had the opportunity to get to know. Uh, and so, you know, it, it really kind of unraveled for me as a result of just getting to know some of these uh, fine people. And that started me down this, this new path uh, of working for criminal justice reform that culminated in me coming to work doing policy, uh, legislative policy work for the campaign. Hmm. Now, you made a statement. You said the jury and the prosecutor don't get to know the things that you uncovered when you taught in the prison. Why? You know, I think, uh, I think there's a couple of reasons, you know, number one is just sort of the, the, the only questions that the system is really designed to answer. There's really only three, as far as I can tell, you want to know what law was broken and you want to know who was responsible for that and you want to know what the punishment is going to be. And, and I feel pretty confident in saying that because that's, that's, those are the questions that a guilty plea resolves. When somebody pleads guilty, you know what law was broken, you know who's responsible, and you know what the punishment's going to be, and the process grinds to a halt. Mm -hmm. there's, there's no further inquiry about, well, well, why did this happen? You know, well, why did you do this? You know, or, and there's no question about, well, well, what are you going to do to make it right? What does the victim need? You know, there's a, there's a lot of other questions that we could be asking, but we're really only asking what law was broken, who's responsible, what's the punishment going to be? And if that's all you're concerned with, then, you know, the context in which the crime was committed is, is largely irrelevant. 
And that's why we have the rules of evidence, you know, where the, the defendant might want to introduce some mitigating evidence, but the trial judge, you know, can determine, you know what, that's not really relevant to answering our three questions. And so we're not going to let the jury hear about that. Um, so, uh, and, and it's just the nature of an adversarial system where, you know, the prosecutor, the victim, they don't get the opportunity, you know, to sit down and, and get an explanation from the person who caused the harm. And the person who caused the harm doesn't get a chance to, to sit down and take responsibility and apologize. If you do that, that's called a confession. And we're, and, and we're told, you know, well, you have the right to remain silent and anything you say will be used against you in a court of law. So the system preponderates against getting all the information out there and trying to figure out what we need to do to try to begin to make this right. Yeah. That's, that's really an incredible perspective that we don't often hear, right? So you, you took that experience in the prison how much time elapsed before you realized you had to make a U-turn, in a sense, and find some other kind of work? Yeah, uh, very little time elapsed. Really? You know, uh, it, 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 it doesn't take long. You know, once you start to experience sort of a conversion, um, or at least in my experience, you know, once I started getting to know those people, and started, uh, you know, thinking of them as friends, it became very clear to me that, you know, this was going to make a demand on me. You know, the status quo was not, not sustainable. Um, it did take a little while to figure out how to make that U-turn mm -hmm. because by that time uh, I had two kids. Uh, my wife was staying at home to take care of the little ones. Um, and, uh, and so you can't just all of a sudden say, you know, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go be a farmer, you know, or something. I mean, you know, I, I had gone to school, I had incurred a lot of uh, debt, um, you know, to, for my education. Um, so, and, and, and that made it, you know, a really hard time, you know, it was really hard to, to feel like, you know, like everybody else, you know, we tell a, a 18 or a 20 or 22 year old, well, you need to make your own path, you know, uh, declare a major, you know, and figure out what you want to do with your life. Uh, and then you get a little ways into it uh, and, and you're in debt, you know, and, and you've got this job and it's like, ooh, that wasn't the path I needed to be on. Um, and that's that's a hard, that's a humbling thing, I think, you know, to have happen to you or you you find out, you know, I tried to grab the bull by the horns and and, and it didn't work, you know. And so I had to sort of be patient for a while and figure out, well, where is this current going to take me? Um, and once I started getting opportunities to talk a little bit about that experience, um, you know, then it started leading to more and more opportunities. And again, I, I was able to get in touch with the folks at the campaign and, and, uh, and the rest was sort of history. How did you, but how did you know um, the direction to take? How did you know about the campaign for the fair sentencing of you? Um, so I was really, really fortunate. I've been very blessed along the way to have certain people who were a little further along than me, who felt compassion for me uh, and thought, well, maybe he's not a lost cause, you know, um, and so they invested. And so Reverend Janet Wolf was one of those people who uh, knew that I had taught out at the prison and she, she has been doing prison ministry for a long, long time and prison education work through Vanderbilt Divinity School. So we crossed paths and she invited me to come to death row where she had a book club. 
and oh. she was like, why don't you come to death row and share your story and see if those guys have any wisdom for you? And sure enough, man, I mean, if, if you're needing some advice, the guys on death row, they are just profound, profound source of wisdom and compassion. Uh, and so I spent a little time, you know, with them and, and then, then uh, Janet invited me to come. She was working with, uh, with uh, the Children's Defense Fund with uh, Ms. Edelman there. And so she invited mm -hmm. me to come to their annual conference, which was back in 2012 in Cincinnati. Um, and while I was there, I met Brian Stevenson and Michelle Alexander, you know, and just these sort of titans for criminal justice reform. Um, but the, the uh, director of the campaign, Jody Kent Levy, Levy was there. So I got to, to talk to her and she introduced me to the work of the campaign and had me come to her annual conference and had me do some writing for them in op-eds when they would be trying to get a bill passed. And so that just kind of began a, a really beautiful relationship. And I'm really, really glad to get to be part of that team now. Um, a question, why didn't you veer in the direction of Equal Justice Initiative, Brian Stevenson's magnificent uh, nonprofit? Mm -hmm. um, well, at the time when I was trying to make these decisions, I hadn't really yet heard of the Equal Justice Initiative. Oh. Um, but I mean, to your point, I think that some folks would have just said, you know what, I can't be a prosecutor anymore because I'm feeling this strong desire to to stand in solidarity with people who have been accused of crimes or convicted of crimes. So I'll go be a defense attorney. Um, the, the problem for me, and I, I would I would have all the respect in the world for someone who did that. But the problem for me was I felt like the system was broken. I didn't feel like I had just picked the wrong side of the system. Mm -hmm. Other people might think I needed to stay as a prosecutor and be a reform minded prosecutor. We need those. You know, there's some prosecutors in Maryland and Pennsylvania and Michigan and, and Mississippi and North Carolina, all of whom are doing great work because they are committed to the idea, you know, that we should be seeking restoration and not just retribution. But for me, um, I think what it, what it demanded of me is to step outside the system and to start questioning uh, the goals of the system and the legitimacy of those goals and, and whether the system is even um, uh, effectively meeting the goals that it has set for itself. And I think the answer to all those is no, uh, but it wasn't just a matter of I need to plug in in a different way to the system. I think I needed to kind of step out of the system for a while to gain a little perspective. I see. So, so you connected with um, the campaign, um, and what uh, was there? You know, a difficult decision as to exactly what your role would be there, or has it been pretty much the same? You know, right from the start. No, they they brought me on board uh, to um, handle their legislative advocacy. And I think part of what they were thinking was that, you know, in the in the states where passing a law to abolish life without parole for kids was going to be, you know, somewhat easy, you know, states that were somewhat amenable to that sort of policy change. It's already happened. You know, a lot of states by 2019 had already uh, abolished life without parole for kids. The states that are still holding on and a number of them are, are in the South where I live, um, it's going to be tough. You know, I mean, some of those states are some of the most punitive places on earth. Um, and so I think that they recognized that having someone 
who has who came from that environment, you know, very conservative, tough on crime, uh, you know, so I'm comfortable with that. You know, I mean, those are those are the people that I've grown up with and gone to church with and worked with. And um, I think that they, they sort of recognize that, that maybe I can speak that language uh, a little bit better. All right. So um, I wanted to ask you um, two questions. First, let's, let's see if we can talk about the work you do, but I also want to enlighten people um, about juvenile life without parole. And we'll see, uh, we don't have a lot of time maybe for the second question, but you did say you would return and talk to us some more so we can cover that the next time that you're with us. So tell us in the remaining time um, a little bit about your job description, if you will. So my role at the campaign is, is as I mentioned, to lead our legislative advocacy work. And so what I do uh, in a state like Ohio or Maryland, which just passed legislation, what I'm doing in states like uh, Michigan and Wisconsin is to connect with people in those states, whether they are lawmakers, state level advocates, people who have family members who are incarcerated or people who have lost loved ones to youth violence or faith leaders or business leaders or athletes, anybody, everybody to connect with them, help them understand how immoral it is to tell a child that they don't have hope, that it doesn't matter what they do over the next 10 years or 20 years or 30 or 50, that there is no hope for them to ever get out of prison. I connect with people and I say that is wrong. It doesn't matter what you believe, whether you're conservative or progressive or Republican or Democrat, that's wrong. And we need to make sure it doesn't happen in this state. And so then we try to find a lawmaker who will introduce a bill to make sure that doesn't happen. And then we build support around it. We offer testimony in support of it. Uh, and, and if all the things come together and, and we're, we were able to uh, reach agreements, then, uh, then the law gets passed and, and that gives kids hope. And that is definitely not a snap your fingers, the law passed and you're done, right? No, my goodness. I mean, it, it is, it is tough at every step. It's like walking on a frozen pond. You're just hoping every step along the way that it doesn't crash and fall through because it's a tough issue. You know, yeah. uh, you, you don't get life without parole unless someone has been killed. Uh, and, and you have to think about the families who have lost loved ones and you have sure. to think about the prosecutors who, who are charged with thinking about public safety and the rights of victims. Um, there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of, of things to navigate. Um, so it's not easy. Um, but, I, you know, I've been impressed in the states where, where we've been successful, you know, in the states where we're working now. Um, it's remarkable what a diverse and broad chorus of voices we are able to bring together around this issue and say this is the right thing to do. That's great, because I, I think it's a tough um, concept to sell where you have to sell it. I think that that's what you're saying. Yeah, that's that's right. That's yeah, right. It is. Know. It is the, the, the knee jerk response to violent crime. You know, we recoil. You know, we're fearful. We want to make sure that person is, is kept away from us because that makes us feel less safe. But what we've what we've experienced 
is that when you create these sorts of opportunities for people to, to demonstrate rehabilitation, that the people who are getting those opportunities are doing exactly what we would expect a rehabilitated person to do. They're coming out, they're starting families, they're starting businesses, they're, they're, they're stocking food pantries for their communities. I mean, they're doing all sorts of incredible work. They're teaching school. Um, th these are people who we can count on doing exactly what we want them to do. And some of them are keeping other people from going to prison by mentoring at-risk youth. So, so we don't have to be afraid of this sort of policy change. All right. Well, there's so much more to say, and we will pick it up next time. Um, thank you, listeners, for being with us today to hear about the campaign for the fair sentencing of youth. And this is uh, Pursuing Justice, and we will see you next time on Society Bites Radio. Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You have been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio, and I'm your host, Harriet.